we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders. Was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Are you registered to vote? Headcount is a nonpartisan organization that works with the music and entertainment industry to get fans to vote. To update or check your voter registration status, go to headcount.org, where you'll find all the information you need to be ready for Election Day. Headcount tours with musicians to help concert attendees register to vote, but you don't need to leave your house to register or to get voting info. Register to vote by visiting headcount.org. Hello and welcome to another episode of Mixtape Memories. Uh, today we have a very special guest. Uh, his name is Matt Shiverdecker, aka Shiv, uh, to most people who are listening right now. Uh, Shiv is a film and music writer and notably was uh, the former DJ at WXY, where I listened pretty much religiously for years and years. And um, now he's based in Austin and we're so glad to have him. Hey guys, I've, I missed you so much. It's awesome to be here. So happy to have you. I remember we met so long ago uh, when I was managing a band called Dirty on Purpose in the aughts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you were the music director at Woxie and it was like the, the hot new, you know, radio station, online radio at Woxie 97X. I felt like everybody was listening to it. And you guys, you guys really like pioneered giving indie bands a chance when kind of indie rock was just becoming a little bit more mainstream, I would say. Yeah, I mean, that moment in time was was pretty incredible. I mean, I bridged um, an interesting um, time at the station because, you know, I started listening as a teenager when it was an FM broadcast in southwestern Ohio. So I started listening when I was around 13. And I, from that point on, my whole goal was to work at the station. And so as soon as I graduated college, I started as a weekend warrior, you know, doing like Saturday and Sunday shifts at the station. And it, you know, it went full time, you know, maybe 
within six months or so of graduation, I guess, someone actually left and I got hired. Um, so I worked the from 1998 to 2004 in the FM years. And of course, we were we were a very early uh, internet simulcaster. Back in those days, it was like a 24K real player stream and shit. Like, I oh, I yeah. still just think back to, uh, I started on the overnights and would get messages from people in, you know, Australia and Europe and stuff on the overnight shift if they were listening on that horrible quality stream. <laughs> I remember the webcam. It was kind of like a spotty image of you guys. Oh, it just, it, it was, yeah, it refreshed like every 30 seconds or yeah. something. It wasn't a stream, it wasn't a solid live stream of the studio. It was just images. Yeah. And so then, you know, obviously anyone who knows the Waxy story, like we, we went through several sets of owners after the FM station was sold in 2004 um, lots of ups and downs, but from 2004 to early 2010, we existed as an internet-only station. Um, I continued on as music director and afternoon host, and yeah, I mean, those those moments, uh, especially like around the time that I met you, Jen, and, and Matt, um, as a listener, it's like, we, we got really lucky having the programming sensibility that we had and just the way that that entire scene was blowing up, especially out of New York. Um, it, it just generated a lot of listeners from around the world. Um, and, you know, unfortunately at the end of the day there, we were maybe a little too ahead of the curve in terms of being able to monetize that. And I mean, let's face it, it, by the time we shut down, it was not that long after that when, you know, Spotify and everything became so ubiquitous. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I think the fact that we were not a non-com, like, public radio type of uh, station, I don't know that it would have survived all of that, in, like, no matter what happened, you know, I mean... We maybe we would have lasted longer than we did had we not had the owners that we had at the end. But uh, you know, it's I think it's hard to say that we could have really outlived the Spotify's of the world because we were ultimately they, the people behind the scenes were trying to make money off what we were doing and then indie rock, not you know the biggest source of income for anyone mm -hmm. <laughs> as we all know. So true. <laughs> So, you know, what are you going to do? But I worked there, you know, full-time for 12 years. And, um, you know, one of the best experiences of my life. I always say, you know, it's like I, I already had my dream job. I was so fortunate to have my dream job straight out of school. And how many people get to do that? So, mm -hmm. um, um, you know, I'll always be thankful for the time I, I had there. What was, like, your biggest, like, way to tap into that New York scene? Because you kind of mentioned a little bit about... I mean, you know, it was really interesting. I mean, of course, you know, we had uh, we had great uh, contacts and PR reps and all of those people who were always sending us music submissions. But I think that the, the thing that I really am still very proud of is just that when it came to music programming, I mean, it, it was... 
Mike Taylor, our program director, and myself, and I mean, if, you know, we we had others, other staffers were certainly encouraged to listen to music and make recommendations of stuff, but I mean, we didn't have anyone telling us what to do, what to play. We had no mandate. I mean, we were, we were very lucky, no matter, even, even though I have things to say about, you know, especially our last two sets of owners, um, we never were controlled in any capacity by them. So the great thing was we could get a demo CDR in the mail from a band like Ra Ra Riot when they were still all students at Syracuse University, listen to it completely unsolicited and without any knowledge of what it is, press play on it, fall in love with it, ended up having the band in the studio multiple times and, you know, creating a, a friendship still with those, uh, you know, with, with the band members over the years um, because that's just what we did. We, we supported the music that we personally loved. And um, you can't ask for more than that. There's, I could count on one hand the stations that exist these days that are, that are legitimately doing that. Yeah. What I always loved about your DJing was that you would play something that was perhaps like the hot indie act and A, it wouldn't be the single, it would be an album track. And then you'd kind of follow it up with with a pop uh, song that somehow tied in with that and then go into like Aretha Franklin. And you just unabashedly went in different directions and I thought it was so great and it really told the story. Well, thank you. I mean, that's, that was really important to me. I mean, uh, the station always had a lot of indie spirit, but during the FM years, when I first started working at the station, it was still more controlled than I think a lot of people might realize. Like, I got very lucky because I came on overnights at a time when they were kind of willing to experiment, and they really gave me um, very freeform uh, control of the overnight shift when I started at the station. So I didn't, I, I did have to play. Uh, from the rotation, but almost everything else that I got to play on the overnight shift, I, I could choose whatever I wanted. As long as I knew it didn't swear, I could play what I wanted. Um, I did get in trouble kind of early on for playing Robbie Williams. Um, <laughs> they, they they were just like, okay, we cut the shit. But, um, but I, I was given a lot of free reign. And then when we went internet only, I think we were a lot less afraid of having to be just concerned about genre, right? So that is where I think that there were more things, like you said, in Aretha Franklin or something like that, where it just like, if it if it made sense in the context of the set, um, you know, we might throw it on there. And I, I think our listeners really appreciated that. And I, I do think that's a cue, you know, that we took more from the public radio world um, at that point where it's like, it doesn't, you don't, every song doesn't have to be, researched and tested you know to put it on the air it's like we we programmed our shifts from our heart you know um and i'm not going to say that i you know of course i played things at the station that i didn't personally like because i thought that it was important for us to play them but you know on my on my own shift i had you know complete freedom in the internet years to you know to do what i wanted and yeah i mean i i still miss that I mean, it was it was really incredible to be able to do that and get that instant feedback. I mean, we just 
you got you got emails all day long <laughs> from people who were listening and not just in the Cincinnati area where we were, but people would email from all. I mean, we kept, we had a huge world map in the hallway that we put push pins in when we got emails from places. That's cool. You know, it, th- that was just that was a really exciting aspect of it was knowing that there were people in, you know, Brazil, as you, you may remember, like we had some liners cut in, you know, Brazilian Portuguese by the band Mosquitoes when they came in to perform because we had so many listeners in Brazil. Um, and it just, yeah, I mean, those, those were those were some really <laughs> incredible years. But that's like what I think maybe that people aren't getting from like a Spotify necessarily is like this curation of like... 100%. Playlists are not giving that to you. No, no. like music that you could discover, you know? Cause that was kind of the joy of Loxy. And they can be, you know, there can be good playlists and, and people behind the scenes who are curating great playlists, but it's not the same thing. And and then again, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure there were people who really didn't like how eclectic and weird we were or that. I mean, one complaint that we heard often was, you guys don't play these songs enough for me to get familiar with them. I mean, like, that we went too deep on a record. Because I think that typically we did look at it as being more artist-based and album-based than single-based. And if there was only one good song to play, well, maybe that wasn't something we were going to spend a whole lot of time on. Mm-hmm. That that was a big difference between the FM years and the internet years. I mean, the, the FM years, the station was probably went deeper on records than most quote-unquote alternative stations, but it was still pretty singles-oriented, you know, throughout the the years and um when we broke that up a bit i would say when we went uh streaming yeah i wanted to ask about some of the sessions because i remember there were so many great sessions over the years and i was wondering if you had any favorites that come to mind i mean i know i do but i was wondering if you do i mean honestly so many i mean it that's another thing when i started working at the station in the fm years and i was on the overnights we did occasionally have artists who came in and played acoustic but the studio was very small (laughs) and the station was actually also kind of like 45 minutes away from downtown cincinnati so the pr people and the artists really had to want to do those appearances to to come up there and i i would miss a lot of them i mean very famously, probably when I first started working at the station, Rufus Wainwright came up on his first album. Oh, wow. And I, he signed my CD, but I, I was asleep. You know, I, I, I wasn't there. So then when we started doing the Lounge Act series um, for the dot-com era, um, it was really exciting to be able, you know, I, of course, for over the years, I had listened to Morning Becomes Eclectic sessions on KCRW and things, you know, KEXP and all those stations that were doing these live in-studio performances. And we moved into a studio in downtown Cincinnati that had been a recording studio. So it, like, we didn't have to do much. It was very plug and play for us to be able to utilize that space to do live performances. And it was big enough to do so. I have a lot of favorites. I can tell you that very early on, one of the most incredible sessions was Phoenix. Uh, I remember that one. (laughs) That was a session and it went on really, really late because they showed up with with all their gear to play like Madison Square Garden. And um, we were unprepared. Like we had not done a session of that magnitude at that point. And they were so professional and so ready to like, 
do a full full show um and it and it took a long time to get that set up and then be ready to go live um but we we got that session they weren't playing they weren't even playing in cincinnati our friend at the time dave lombardi who worked at astroworks records at the time you know he made that session happen because he thought it was important um we had been such big supporters of the band uh for uh, like even on the first record but then it, that was when they toured for alphabetical and man that that session still i listen back to that and it you know it could be released you know as a as a commercial release it's, it's an incredible performance um and of course there's just so many i mean you know as i mentioned like Ra Ra riot i just fell in love with so early on and they played at the station multiple times you know groups like the national and silver sun pickups who we were so early on in our support and and then one of my all-time favorites that I that I ever hosted was the Kills during South by Southwest. Mm-hmm. Like they, I was really intimidated to do that session um, and to interview them, and they were just the nicest people. And I had, I, I just, I was on cloud nine after that one for a long time. But I, I'm going to also pinpoint. I wasn't the hugest fan, to be perfectly honest, but My Brightest Diamond, when she came in and she did a cover of Prince's The Beautiful Ones, that still gives me goosebumps when I listen to that. And um, of course, one of one of the very last sessions I did during South by 2010 was with Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. And like, yeah. I, it was an incredible session. She was she was a really good interview. I mean, I, I was also pretty nervous about that one. They, they performed at nine in the morning wow. uh, on like a Saturday during South by, and, you know, they showed up and were just sort of like, I mean, I think at first they just were not sure, you know, what, you know, I don't think they really knew us necessarily. And it was like something that the handlers had talked them into doing but man they they were incredible she was so warm and so so sweet and um i mean if that's how i got to go out was to do you know have have her be one of my final sessions at the station i mean i was i was pretty pretty fortunate i need to get you to make me like a (laughs) mixtape of your favorite (laughs) i i have a ton of it well the full recordings like not necessarily all the songs broken out into files um but i do i do pretty much have the lounge act archives and i'm gonna send you a link that you can include with this because until the end of the year when flash is completely discontinued you can still i don't even understand how this works you guys (laughs) but if you go to the internet archive wayback machine you can still stream all oh. the Lounge Act archives on there. Oh wow! Like it's it was it was archived on wow. the Wayback Machine. Now how that shit still works? Somewhere on cyberspace. I don't really man. understand, but wow. uh, but I can tell you it's there. But several of them, like there's things you can still download from it, but there's a lot of things that were only streamable, and the and that it's like a flash player thing. So it's it's not going to work much longer. Although I can also tell you that Brian Neese, who was our recording engineer um, and did all the lounge act sessions pretty much for us, he started a YouTube channel and has been putting up some, like, I mean, it's going to be a long process, I'm sure. I mean, we did hundreds and hundreds of sessions, yeah. some of which just, you know, are probably not not to denigrate anyone, but are probably not really important enough to repost. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But there's some really incredible sessions, and I think over time he'll work to get those um, get those up. Wow. 
that you That's definitely awesome. have to send us that link. <laughs> yes, I yeah. will. I was hoping you can go back to, you know, b- before you were at the station, just kind of as a kid, as a teenager, kind of consuming music and what that experience was like and what kind of record stores you went to and, <laughs> and your actual mixtape memories. So, I mean, I grew up very rural Ohio. I grew up almost on the Indiana border between Dayton and Cincinnati, Ohio. You would not call where I grew up a city or a town. I lovingly refer to it as a hamlet. <laughs> um, I think it technically was a village. Okay. Very low population. So I had to travel at least 30 to 45 minutes to even get to a record store from where I grew up, which means that, you know, as a kid, it was trips to the mall um, and going to Camelot Music, National Record Mart, Tape World. Um, you know, there were no indie independent stores within my grasp at that age. But I did, I, list, I collected music from an early age. I got my first turntable uh, stereo set up when I, on my third birthday. Oh, wow. What? Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I, on my third birthday, I got a record player, and not like a Fisher-Price record player. I mean, certainly not like the fanciest stereo, but I had a pretty cool turntable, and I, I, don't, I honestly, it may have had an 8-track in it, but I think it was a cassette player. Um, but I got that on my third birthday with a copy of the Grease soundtrack <laughs> and Fleetwood Mac's Rumors at okay, three. classic. So just to, and I still have that copy of Grease. The Fleetwood Mac got so worn out over the years, it's been replaced many times. But I still have the just like shredded Grease soundtrack as a little memorabilia. But I can tell you that on my own, the first albums I ever bought at the Camelot Music at the Salem Mall in Inglewood, <laughs> Ohio... Uh, Michael Jackson's Thriller, and Brian Adams' Reckless. I had to save my money up to be able to buy two records, um, and it was really hard, but that's what I did. Oh, wow. Were there were there in-store performances at any of these places, or not really? If there were, that was not something that I was privy to, mm-hmm. at, you know, in my young age. I mean, I, I know that when, like, by the time I was in high school, I definitely remember, list, like, listening to Waxy and hearing ads on the radio for some of the stores in Cincinnati that might have signings or performances, but that was, you know, that was an hour and a half almost away from me, really, so it, I didn't get to do shit like that. I was definitely a complete and utter pop bitch until um, around the age of 13. I went to a summer camp, and some of the kids lived in Cincinnati, and they were like, oh, man, you should, you know, you need to check this. Because I, I fell in love. Like, the my roommate had, the, he just, he brought all these crazy cassettes with him. And, I mean, I, like, I was, I literally, that summer, was turned on to the Violent Femmes and Skinny Puppy. And the weird, like, the weirdest shit I had never heard of before in my whole life. And he was like, oh, yeah, they play all this music on WOXY 97X. And so, like, when I got home from that summer camp, I made my dad hook our external television antenna, like, outside the house. I made him split that in inside the living room so that it could run to the TV, but also to the stereo. And once he ran the outdoor wireframe antenna to the stereo, 97X came in crystal clear. And I just made, I, I just taped... I just filled cassette after cassette after cassette with it because I couldn't necessarily get it on my radio in other rooms of the house very well. It was super staticky. But that began my love affair 
with and being exposed to all this music that I never ever could have heard about at that point really. I I didn't have cable where I grew up. Like we were we were in the country. So 97X was my awakening. Um there's just no my life wouldn't would never have been the same without it. Wow. Wow. No MTV. Like I was going to say <laughs> I was I a made, TV child. <laughs> well, and so I literally I would go to my uncle Todd's and like spend the night and just, and I would take blank VHS tapes and I would record MTV all night long. Cause you know, they played the most videos from like midnight to 6am. Mm-hmm. I would just do that every time I went to his house too, so that I could watch videos. I had no access in my little podunk village. <laughs> I didn't realize you grew up in such a rural area, actually. I graduated with like less than, less than 70 people from my high school. Oh, wow. Yeah, That's really small. really small. <laughs> really small. But I, I definitely did get really into mixtapes, especially in, in high school. I actually went digging a little bit today, and I could, I mean, I, I'm so disorganized um, <laughs> here. I mean, my records are really organized, but, like, I was hoping I might be able to find for you, and maybe someday I will, but it's not going to be now. Yeah. Um, I, I have at least one notebook that I saved uh, that I used to write all my track listings in so that I wouldn't repeat myself. Uh, because, I mean, it was definitely a thing, uh, you know, uh, certainly as I went into college and worked at the college radio station, my friends just knew, they liked my taste, but they didn't really know a lot about the music. And so people were always asking me to make them tapes of stuff. And so I, I got really into that for a long time. And I, and certainly, I mean, good Lord, I would be, really embarrassed i would say uh especially for a couple i mean like i was not subtle with guys that i was like in love with who were not you know who were just like straight dudes that i you know worked with or like whatever Uh, i get i mean i know matt will appreciate that i'm pretty sure that the smiths i keep mine hidden was on like (laughs) so many fucking tapes which might i might as well have just said hi i'm a faggot <laughs> yeah, exactly. like on that that should have just been like the spine <laughs> of my tape but um you know that's what i did that's what i did and um and every now and again there i've i have had friends over the last couple years who have sent me pictures and been like oh i just found this tape you made me in 1999 or whatever and it just you know it always cracks me up I was going to ask when you started your vinyl collection, but you answered that already. Three years old. <laughs> Three. I mean, you know, I, here's my biggest regret, but it's also, it's just one of those things, right? I mean, when I started, when I graduated college and I started working at 97X, it was certainly not for the money. This was a small, independently owned radio station, and I didn't make shit there. So I survived... And, you know, sorry, music industry, but I'm the least of your problems now. Um, I survived by selling off shit that I didn't need or want. And so, like, there was certainly a moment in time, and I I mean, I collected records even all all through college, and then, like, kind of hit this wall where I was like, uh, do I really need to keep that record if I have the CD? And, I mean, I, I sold off stuff to make money at different times when I needed it. And like now when I, like I kick myself knowing some of the things that I got rid of and 
they're worth so much money now. And not, not that I would even sell them now, but just that I, like, I certainly can't replace them. (laughs) And it, but you know, this is the, this is the life. I probably moved to Austin with just a couple hundred records in 2009. And we have well over 4,000 in the apartment now. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Do you have like a whole room dedicated to it? Well, there's, I mean, we're in a two-bedroom apartment, and, like, the records are the entire living room, and where normal normal people would have a dining room is where we have most of our records and the turntables, and then this guest room that I'm in that is doubling as my current home office for work, um, there's, there's another, like, half of them. All the 12 inches and 7 inches are in this room. But and and all the box sets, pretty much. But the 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 core record collection is out in the living room and technically dining room that is not a dining room. Yeah, you've been uh, putting those records to work during quarantine, DJing. On we Twitch. have, <laughs> we have. I know. I love that you guys have both joined us at different times. I mean, mm-hmm. it kind of came out of boredom. But we had tried to do some DJ streams in, like, earlier years, but, like, we were doing them on Facebook, and then they just kept getting shut down for copyright shit, and it was a pain in the ass, and so we just stopped doing it. And then, you know, we started seeing Questlove and all these people DJing on Twitch, and Ben was like, I have a Twitch account I never use, and we we just started doing it every Thursday night, and I know... Like, we're at this weird precipice right now of Twitch. Like, they've they've changed their terms of service to technically not allow music streaming, but they're not really shutting people down yet. Um, I think it's going to come, and we're going to have to find someplace else to do it. But, I, I mean, I don't give a fuck. Like, we'll, we'll do it wherever we have to. I mean, it's, it's, it's like the highlight of our week to just hang out and chat with our friends and just have fun and play, play stuff that we love and be silly and get drunk. And like, it's so much fun. And yeah, we, we get, we're giving the collection a real workout by uh, just diving into it for three or four hours every Thursday night. This is with your fiance, Ben Wintel, AKA That's Austin Bloggy. Austin Bloggy. <laughs> yeah. It's his Twitch channel. I mean, and I'm very, very lucky um, that Ben not only, like, has the, I mean, we're just very similar (laughs) in so many ways. And I think that he, I mean, it's not like I have to talk him into doing this. Like, he, he really, really loves doing it, too. And I think we have so much fun together with it that um, it's just one more, I mean, to me, it's just one more sign of why, you know we we are supposed to be together and that we have been together for 10 years at this point um because uh he you know he's a really good match for me in in many many ways but for with with our passion for music you know a thousand percent maybe that's the real reason you went to austin (laughs) (laughs) well hey you know i mean i say that all the time i i was i was so angry when Waxy shut down um, I, I felt that we had been treated so shitty. Um, and there's all kind of, you know, it's no, I don't even need to get into it. But I mean, all you really need to know is that we hosted like 36 bands that week of South by 2010. And then we came back to the office 
the Monday after. We had one day off after doing 36 bands. And then they told us over speakerphone that they couldn't afford to run us anymore. And would we be willing to work for free for a while while they figured it all out? And we all were like, mm, no, we've been down this road before. Eat a dick. And we, we, that was it. We, there was no, there was no big final hurrah at the end because we all had been down that road before. And we were just like, nah, like we're not, we're not going to see how this plays out. Like y'all are, y'all are dumb. Um, and so that was it. Um, and I, and I was really, really pissed off about it for months and still get, get a little worked up about it if I think about it too much. But all of that to say that I moved to Austin completely for free. I didn't pay for a fucking thing because they actually handled all of it. And I, because I was single, like I got to just move all my stuff on the moving truck that housed all of the station library and equipment and, and everything. So like I moved to this city for free, which I know, I mean, I never could have done or would have probably pulled the trigger on, on my own otherwise. And I love all of my friends and family who are back in Ohio, but like this is the place where I do feel like I needed to be and, and want to be. And so, you know, it's like, I, at the end of the day, I feel like I can't be, I can't harbor that resentment over something that really, I mean, it, it changed my life in some ways negatively, but in other ways, you know, I met the love of my life and I, and I literally fell in love with a city um, that had so much to offer me um, and, and a lot more than I had found in the Midwest. So, uh, you know, it's just, how can I be, how can I be mad? Even though I'm, even though I'm still a little mad. Well, of course, understandably. <laughs> and we could sense it in your voice and it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was going to say that when I watch you DJ with Ben and you guys go back and forth with kind of one selection, the next selection, and sometimes just, you know, one person has one hour and then, you know, the other person has the other hour. It, they just compliment, everything complements itself so well. And um, I don't think you can kind of force that you either have the the chemistry i mean in a romantic situation but also in in this situation as it relates to music i feel like it's a good pairing he keeps me on my toes i mean he uh you know i am start, i'm slowly starting to turn into that older person who doesn't listen to as much new music as i used to and but everything that i fall in love with that's new is is almost exclusively stuff that he's just like oh man you gotta listen to this and, uh, you know, or things that he just falls in love with and buys and starts playing. Excuse me. And then I, I just like, um, yeah, he, he continually still, after all this time, will like impress me with the things that he picks out and plays. And I mean, he, he also, he comes from a college radio background. Like he has that in him too. Um, and I mean, I don't know. I, I didn't think to ask him about his experience with like mixtapes and things. I don't know if that was as big of a part of his life as it was mine, but like, uh, you know, he, he also has an absurdly encyclopedic knowledge of, of music and like all different types of genres. We both like so many different types of things. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it makes the DJ nights really, really fun. Totally.
I was hoping we could maybe briefly discuss your film writing. In addition to being a music buff, you're a huge film buff. When did when did you start writing and um, how did that kind of develop? Well, I mean, again, it's I mean, talk about just how everything kind of had to line up the way that it did. I mean, I, I always loved movies and I worked in a video store for 10 years part time while I even as I worked at Waxy in the early days, because, again, I made no money. I really made no money working two jobs, but that's just, you know, I, but I was delved in, I was, you know, had, had everything that I loved between the two jobs. Um, so I always had that passion and I took just, I, I took, I took as many film classes as I could take in college without it, without it being like my major. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, but, but radio always superseded that. So, um, when when we got to Waxie, the one new person that they had hired on the ground here was a woman named Paige McGuire, who I love so much. And at the time, Paige was the editor of Austinist, uh, which, of course, no longer exists either because, you know, she was the editor of Austinist at the time and Waxie shut down and she was just like, if you need an outlet you know, for just, you know, for your creativity or whatever, like, you know, she's like, it would be easy for you to do some film reviews for us and stuff. And I was like, yeah, that would be, that would be so great. So, I mean, I really didn't start that until the spring of 2010 after Waxie shut down. I started just doing like a weekly column for Austinist. I I helped cover South by Film and Fantastic Fest and Aglif, our Gay and Lesbian Film Festival and stuff like that for Austinist for a while. And then Austinist shut down. And then I wrote for a local website called Slackerwood, uh, which also subsequently shut down. I mean, I, I, I feel like I have like a, the reverse Midas touch uh, sometimes. <laughs> um, what are you going to do? I, I, I picked up some reviews um, at Pace Magazine and different things. And when Slackerwood shut down, some of the um, arts uh, writers and the editors um, for the Austin American Statesman here in town had reached out to me and were just like, hey, you know, Maybe you'd like to, to and so like I just I kind of just started doing random freelance stuff for them, which turned into a weekly column that I've been doing for um, five and a half years now. Um, so I'm in the print paper and the Austin 360 website every Wednesday, and I just I do a weekly column about what's new on VOD and streaming services, and that has you know. That's been something, I mean, I just, I watch movies all the time, so it's pretty easy. I feel like half of my life has been spent just making recommendations to people about what I think they should watch. So me getting paid to do that every week is also, you know, pretty cool. Um, so, like, that, that's all I do. I mean, I, I love movies so much, um, but I... I didn't really want to go down that trail. I mean, after everything I went through with the radio station, it's like trying to survive as a freelance writer is not the easiest path. And I I just was like, "Um, you know, I'm good over here. I mean, I I actually have a very reliable uh, full-time gig producing online education. So the film writing has just allowed me to stay, you know, to have have a creative outlet and really just tell people what I think that they should watch, <laughs> which I was already doing for free. So mm-hmm. that's that's actually pretty cool. And I'm, I'm in the Austin Film Critics Association and also in a national group called Galeca, which is the Gay and Lesbian Entertainment Critics Association. So that, you know, I get to vote in award season stuff, which is like, if you would have oh, told, cool. if, if you would have told me 
growing up in Lewisburg, fucking Ohio, that one day I was going to get, like, screeners for, like, you know, Oscar season? Give me a break. I mean, I don't vote in the Oscars, but I vote in my in my group, critic group awards each year. Um, so that's, I mean, it's just sort of the icing on the cake of everything, just that I've, you know, kind of finagled a way to, to keep, you know, that, that passion going, you know, Ben works on music festivals. So I still have that live music connection and, you know, under normal non COVID circumstances, you know, we go to a ton of shows and uh, events and everything, or we were so lucky to get to attend a lot of the Austin city limits tapings for PBS. And I mean, again, if you would have told me growing up watching that show every (laughs) week, that I would one day just get to be in the audience for lots of tapings of some of my very favorite artists, you know. And sidebar, of all of those, my favorite ACL TV experience was Paul Thomas Anderson sitting next to me during the Radiohead taping. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. I got, I, I was... I really debated about whether I was going to say anything to him. And then I just, at the very end of it, after, like, as, as everyone was getting up to leave, I just sort of looked at him and I presented my hand to him. And I was just like, I think I even said Mr. Anderson. I don't remember. I was sort of, <laughs> but I was just like, I just really wanted to say, you know, that I'm a big fan. And I'm, and that I was like, I'm so excited for the master. That was the, it was like, I'm sure it was finished, but he, it wasn't released yet. And I think that he was really taken aback that anyone, like, recognized him. And I got to be honest, there was, like, a split second thing where I was just like, is, am I sure this is him? But, <laughs> you know, he was there because of Johnny. Mm. Uh, Johnny Greenwood. Yeah. This, just I've just fallen into the most amazing circumstances and experiences since living here. And uh, I'm thankful every day for it. That's awesome. Was it weird, like, because um, I know you usually go to South by Southwest to cover, like, the films um, mm-hmm. for the newspaper. Um, yeah. Was it weird not having that experience because of pandemic? Well, it was, not only was it weird, but it is, I mean, I'm, I have to, I have to imagine that a lot of things are going to get upended, you know, through all of this, but technically, uh, in order to stay current, at least in the Austin Film Critics Association, I have to have a certain number of reviews a year. And I'm not a full-time critic. And my weekly column does not count towards the requirements because yeah. I'm doing capsule reviews of multiple movies and it doesn't meet, like, the, you know, I don't have, like, the word count of every review. I normally stay uh, afloat in in that Critics Association is specifically because of all of my uh, festival coverage each year. I, you know, I'll, I'll end up doing 30, 40 reviews in a year just from covering the, the South by Fantastic Fest, Aglef, sometimes Awesome Film Festival. We covered some of the streaming titles. South by did a partnership with Amazon Prime this year and did some streaming. But yeah, I'm not going to meet my normal review count um, this year because of what's going on. And I mean, and I, I assume a lot of people won't because uh, unless they've pivoted to just reviewing VOD titles and stuff, like what are you what are you covering? I mean, really, right now there's 
not a lot of great stuff even even the things that are being released digitally like eh, it's kind mm-hmm. of slim pickings mm-hmm. so yeah i mean I, I i really really miss the south by experience um and and i hope it's able to come back next spring but i mean at this at this point i think life just has a giant question mark on it and it's yeah. it's yeah. disheartening yeah. yeah yeah we're all in this boat together yeah, for yeah. sure. Shall we pop into repeat skip? Yeah. Sure. Do it. Um, the first pick, I'm so excited because it's one of my favorite albums ever. It is PJ Harvey's 2000 release, uh, Stories from the City, Stories from the Sea. Yeah, who wants to start, Shiv? <laughs> I'll start, yeah, because we, we picked up the albums because I posted the the 97 best of 2000, which was our annual countdown at the radio station. And we put that together. It, at that point, it was strictly based on plays. So they would go through and tally up how many spins all the different songs off the different albums um, had through the course of the year. And we did a countdown. Um, and so, yeah, Stories from the City, Stories from the Sea is definitely one of my favorite albums of that year. It was like 26 on our countdown or something. But that's still how many fucking stations in the United States play PJ Harvey. Right. Um, you know, and, and, and we did a lot. Um, and this, I'm so excited. I mean, it hasn't been officially announced with a release date yet, but she's re-releasing her entire catalog on vinyl and i think this one's probably going to come in october or november i saw that too and was so excited i've been waiting because i feel like you probably know better than me but with each re-release isn't there some sort of like you know there's a certain amount of like a a limited uh like so what is it exactly because i always miss it (laughs) well so well i haven't gotten any of the like i haven't gotten any of the signed ones off her website the signed ones yeah but each so far with each release, she has done a companion demos uh, mm-hmm. album as well. I right. think it's a little weird that they're not just doing them as like a deluxe, but maybe she's doing it just in case there are people who still actually have the OG copies that they don't have to buy a more expensive double LP just to get the demos if they want them. I don't I know. Mean, that's I mean, I've been buying now. <laughs> I've been buying both for each of them, and I will continue to do so. Um, <laughs> but yeah, this record. I mean, wow. It just, and I mean, I think the crazy thing is like this, this album is such a love song to New York city and you know, I've been coming out and before nine 11, um, like, I mean, obviously predating by a year, but like it just, this entire, just this record is just filled with a passion for New York and um, I, I I love it. I love it so much. It's, it's of, of all of her albums, it's my start to finish favorite. And I, I can't say enough good things about it. What's like your favorite song from it? Um, The last song we float has always been, I mean, the whore's hustle and the hustler's whore is right, right next to it. But we float is is gorgeous. It's it's kind of haunting. I I just I love the way she sings on that track, and it just like that was one. I mean, obviously, never a single. Um, one of those tracks that I would play on my overnight shift because I could play whatever I wanted, and I played we float a lot on the overnight. <laughs> 
I mean, I, I went real hard for that record. I mean, it was in regular rotation with the singles, but then I played pretty much all the other songs too. Listening back to on this album prepping for this episode, I um, I found like a new more or more of an appreciation for PJ Harvey than I did back when um, when it came out. I don't know what it was. I don't know. I didn't get, get into her as hard as like some people did. But when I yeah. listened back on this album, I just was like blown away. I just think it's like it's so hard to like pick a, a, a track that I would skip. You know what? I like really love Horses in My Dreams. Mm. I actually have walked around New York listening to that song because <laughs> it was um, on some soundtracks of a group that I used to, a dance group that I used to work with. They had this song mm. in one of their um, numbers and it's just so beautiful and like dreamy and like there's just such a delicateness to it. So that song, I think, like just stood out to me. I think that. Like, what you're talking about is is something that's really interesting about this record, because let's face it, a lot of her work before this album um, is decently caustic at times. I mean, like, I I don't think that she, um, in most cases, like, was ever trying to make a very, like, accessible album. And I'm not saying, I don't even think that that necessarily is what she was trying to do here, but I think that this album is more cohesive and accessible. I mean, like, if you're, if you just, someone is like, where should I start with PJ Harvey? Like, I would, I would tell them to listen to this record because I think a lot of her other albums have songs that could pull in your average listener, but that this record is, is a way easier and, um, I, I just I think that's like a good entry point into her songwriting, but that isn't too difficult. I agree. I mean, and that maybe that's dismissive, but like I just, um, I mean, because I, I, I love every aspect of her, even the weirdest shit. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm going to buy the dance point at Laos Hall reissue too, but like, <laughs> you know, uh, I'd rather listen to this record. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah, I really loved her vocals on this album just so much. Mm. And, like, you know, without reading, like, too many comparisons, I already was, like, thinking, oh, she sounds like Patti Smith. And and then I was trying to figure out, like, that who that other voice is that could be mixed in there. And it was definitely, like, a Susie Sue vibe. And um, mm. she, just, uh, she just really created like an awesome album on here um and it was kind of interesting that she had several like tom york kind of collaborations on this mm. album too and oh i love their voices together yeah so much. and i don't think that um like if i was just going by like down by the water or something from her previous album like i don't think that like i would have like necessarily put them together like musically sure know? sure yeah, I mean, that actually used to be my favorite track, uh, The Mess We're In, but um, over the years, it's changed, and I think, like, this is one of those albums that probably every time I listen to it, I have a different favorite. Um, I think for me, what's so incredible about this album is that I feel like there are highs and lows, in not in terms of the quality of the album, but in terms of the mood of the album. Like, you know, there's love, there's loss, there's, there's confusion, there's... Um, a sense of trying to figure it all out. And I think I just love the journey that she kind of takes you on. Um, 
and uh, I don't know. The songs just have always really touched me, and definitely more so this album than anything she's put out since or prior to it for me. You know, picking a favorite today, uh, it would probably be between Big Exit and The Horse Hustle and The Hustless Whore. Um, I just love both those tracks so much. In fact, the only one today that, like, doesn't move me as much as it did 20 years ago is Kamikaze, which is kind of funny because at the time I would play that song always on my college radio station, college radio show. And like that one, I don't know. That one I feel like isn't maybe the most necessary one for me right now. I I wrote Kamikaze down yeah, <laughs> as my skip. It's funny because you both love Whore's Hustle and the Hustler's Whore, but that I picked that as my oh. skip. <laughs> <laughs> and I understand, I understand your reasoning, but there's something about the vibe of that song. It does have a cool That vibe. I really get. I don't think that she is anti-whore. Yeah. And I'm not either. I don't know. I think I, was, I just was right. trying to no, like give an excuse of like, because it was so hard to pick one. And I was like, I guess that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I also think that like... um for me, listening to this album now in a New York that has changed because of the pandemic and kind of this, I don't know, loneliness and, and kind of con- um, uh, mystery that we're all feeling, I feel like there's some parallels to this album in a weird way. Kind of almost like a post-9-11 New York, even though this, like you said, this was released just before that. Um, I don't know. I feel like it is um, like eerily relevant now. Yeah. I'm with you. I love it. Yeah, and the second album we're going to touch upon is Travis's breakthrough album, The Man Who, from 1999. You know, it did come out in late 99, but I almost think, I don't remember, I didn't look this up. So I the U.S. release was staggered, for sure, after the U.K. release, and I can, it, it came up in our discussion here because it was our number one most played album of the year of 2000 at mm-hmm. 97X. Like, I, I know that the listeners of the podcast aren't going to see this, but I still pulled it out for you guys. Um, <laughs> oh, and it's oh, backwards, nice. but um, that's my signed copy wow. of The Man Who on vinyl. I have... I have a ridiculous amount of autographed Travis shit because we we were so supportive of this album and they mm-hmm. played Cincinnati, believe it or not, like a couple of times. Um, I, I feel like they opened for someone and they did their own tour and um, they, you know, we did like meet and greets with them and stuff for our listeners because we just, I mean, we had to be one of the stations in the country that played them the most, you know, so the, so Epic was really good to us about that. So yeah, I got to meet them several times. I have a, also probably a, a, a silly amount of photographs with them um, that I will just always hold very dear because I was very much in love with Franny um, well, at that time. Same. <laughs> and, and Dougie, really. Um, oh yeah. Dougie was probably the better looking one, I guess. But I don't know. Yeah. They both were pretty cute. <laughs> I will. This is how big of a nerd I was. I cornered Dougie um, at an after show um, just to tell him how much I loved one because uh, he he didn't get a lot of songwriting credits. I don't think on the records, but they, so he he one of the B sides that he wrote for this album. That of course, like how who the fuck knew those in the United States, you know? But I was just like, oh, I really, you know, only the. Now I can't even remember. I think it's called Only the Faces Change. It might be Only the Places Change. But anyway, I was just like, that's really my one of my favorite songs from this whole album cycle, Dougie. And he like 
he blushed and got like he gave me a big <laughs> hug and just was like I don't I think he was just like couldn't believe that someone actually knew that song here in America. Yeah. And I was like, I was definitely that was the time of my life where I mean I got a lot of free shit working at the station, of course, but I imported stuff constantly from England. I mean, I I got every import single. I mean, I spent so much money, and those discs are now worth like twelve cents. <laughs> but um, yeah, I had I had all the B sides and remixes, and you know, you name it. I just and Travis was a band that I like pretty obsessively collected. So between the things I could get a hold of from the record label, and then the shit that I would order um, from like Piccadilly Records in England um, and Norman Records and stuff, I used to just order stuff. Wouldn't it be weird if like Gen Z brought back CDs, like like how we brought back vinyl? I weirdly think it's possible. Just in the, I mean, look, if there could be a cassette resurgence, so you never know. (laughs) You never know. I mean, I still. I mean, I got rid of so much stuff, especially when Waxy was when Waxy ended. I mean, I sold a lot of stuff just to get. I was just like, I don't need. When I started getting, like, all the way back into vinyl, I was like, I don't need all these fucking CDs. <laughs> so, I mean, I sold thousands of CDs. Um, but I still have, you know, I probably have 500 CDs still underneath our bed and in these, you know, in big Rubbermaid mm-hmm. containers. And it's, like, anything that I had autographed or I spent a lot of the import stuff I couldn't really bring myself to get rid of. And like the people that I had collected so much, like Bjork and Robbie Williams and uh, Sugar Babes. I just, I hung on to a lot of that stuff. Um, yeah. I still have yeah. like maybe a couple maybe. hundred CDs that I don't know what I'm going to do with, but they're just under my desk. Um. <laughs> they're pretty, they're pretty worthless. And yet... Every now and again, there's something that disappears from streaming, you know? It's like, you can't count on that shit to always be there no. for you. Yeah, I know. It's <laughs> weird to think. I mean, I I have stopped ripping everything, you know? I mean, like, for a long time, I was, like, obsessed with trying to rip everything into iTunes and stuff. And at a certain point, I was just like, whatever. If I can't find it on, you know, Spotify or YouTube or whatever, like, do I do I even need to hear it? But, uh, <laughs> that's, but that's not always the case. Yeah. It's not always the case. Uh, going back to Travis, like, so what What was, like, yes. your favorite song from this album? Um, I mean, I really, really love this record. Um, but for me, it's, like, the, uh, the album opener, Riding to Reach You, um, Turn, and Driftwood are, like, my, my very, very yeah. favorites. Um, I know, I like, this album is actually better than... I remember it being, I think I was confusing them with like Coldplay Yellow, um, <laughs> something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, well, no, th- th- I, th- it's something I, to be said for like the Man Who versus Parachutes because they both were kind of around the same time. Like they around both, the same time. Yeah. And, and obviously Coldplay had, way, I mean, you know, Travis were very successful in the UK and it had a smidge of success here. But, um, you know, Coldplay far and away became the band and uh you know here in america i i suspect that most people just have never heard of travis despite a, a pretty incredible body of work it's quite true mm-hmm. um but the, this album is this album is really yeah. special to me 
And, and, and yeah, I mean, obviously the hit single from it was Why Does It Always Rain On Me. I know that actually yeah. I definitely connected with that song because I just think that's a sentiment that anyone can connect with. It probably showed up on mixed CDs I made um, or playlists or something. Maybe I DJed it. Fran is a really gifted songwriter. He, I mean, like his his lyrics are very... I don't know how to say that without being. I mean, because I think it's. I think almost anything sounds like a, a cut down. Like it's. They're they're very relatable. I think that they're. Um, it's not like he's some master of wordplay, but I just they're really really genuine and heartfelt yeah. lyrics, and somehow they're the arrangements and everything that you know that they did as a band just like I mean made those songs. I mean, at, at, especially at that point in my life. Um, I just, I connected so hard and I, I mean, I wanted, I saw them live over and over and over again. And it was just always such a, I mean, I, I, I have really, really fond memories of, of being in love with them. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you. Like that, that opening track writing to reach you, I think that was just like, uh, such a great track to open with. It just draws you in and then. You know, the rest of the album is pretty good, too. But I think, yeah, Writing to Reach You was my, like, repeat on this album. Matt G., what what was your repeat? This So this was an album that I was also obsessed with. There was a period of time between the release of this album and The Invisible Band and then whatever followed that, which I don't recall off the top of my head. Like, I was hardcore into Travis. I remember they did a... Uh, a Virgin Megastore Union Square uh, performance and signing, and I geeked out when I met them. I didn't get a photo with them, stupidly, but I wish I did. There's a span of time where I would try and do, like, imitate Fran's faux hawk, but it didn't really work because I have, like, frizzy Jewish hair, and it just looks like... It doesn't look nearly as good. Um, and, yeah, but, I mean, I was, a, I was a huge Travis fan. I remember at this, like, right around this time, I feel like... One of the B-sides or one of the live tracks was like, uh, didn't they cover Baby mm-hmm. One More Time? Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, it's like an acoustic Yeah, it thing. was from okay. VH1 Storytellers in Europe. On the single, yeah. And then they um, put it on yeah, the I, single. Yeah, I remember hearing it. <laughs> we, we played it. Um, we played I saw it them a the bunch because uh, they came through D.C. a lot as well uh, where, where I went to school. So I saw him at 9.30 Club a bunch. Um, for me, uh, I think if I were forced to pick a repeat, I, I would probably pick Driftwood. I just think that's such a classic single. Um, in fact, the only one on this album that I really don't ever care to hear again is Love. Like, to me, that song is super cheesy. And um, I don't know. It makes me giggle, actually. Love and She's So Strange there towards the end. I, I, I rarely would listen all the way through to that. But then I would skip on the CD... Yeah. through to the hidden blue flashing light that was the such a hidden good song. track a blue flashing light yeah yeah they always played that it's so funny because like i feel like i'm like <laughs> disagreeing with you guys on my skips um <laughs> the, uh, i mean i picked the fear um i noticed that it wasn't I, I thought that was like a bit forced um and uh mm. mm. too i thought maybe a little bit forced um but yeah, but yeah, the harmonica in love. I'm a sucker <laughs> for it. Yeah, me too. But the harmonica in love was like just killing me. It was like Kenny G or something. That big chorus. That big. Oh. <laughs> I love it. 
And the, and the kicker is, as with all of these British bands at that time, there are so many B-sides that honestly, you know, arguably could have been better album tracks, you know, but can't, re- can't rewrite history. Yeah, it was all about B-sides. You know, another band I was very into during this time that was also of, of the same cloth is Star Sailor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm super embarrassed. <laughs> so I know I love Star Sailor. Flew to LA because my dear friend who who worked at Capitol Records at that time and who was there promote you know who promoted them to the station. Um, he turned thirty and invited me to come out there for his party. Uh, we we all went to go see Star Sailor and the Charlatans uh, play a show. Wow. That's also. Oh, I saw that tour. <laughs> that's also, that's a yep. show where Pete Yorn saw me in between sets from the fucking balcony and screamed my name oh my and had, got me to turn around. That's and said, awesome. yeah, he, he's, he's, my boy, he's my man. And, and so Star Sailor came to Steve's party after the show. And like, I bowl, we were in a bowling alley. I bowled with I Star that. Sailor. <laughs> I have the weirdest fucking experiences from my from my days yeah. at the station, uh, you know, lots of great memories. <laughs> the only artist I ever bowled with was Montel Jordan. <laughs> I I feel like, I feel like you just won quite frankly. Yeah, that is a, that's a winner. Sadly, it was like for um, like, like a, you know, he had an album coming out, but then it got shelved. Oh. <laughs> so maybe the fact that they were doing a bowling party for yeah. it is, you well, know, you know, it was applied. back in the days when um, there would be like these marketing trips for bloggers or like online, you know, uh, journalists. And so I was part of the online journalist thing because I worked at a teen website. That's amazing, actually. I mean, that Montel Jordan was. <laughs> Like the day after I was supposed to interview him and I got sick and somebody else had to um, do the interview for me. And um, I think my editor like gave him my phone number, like my home phone number or something. Because like I was in bed, I was like, you know, trying to sleep and like the answering machine goes on and like he's like leaving me this like voicemail. (laughs) Like I heard you were sick. Uh, I was just like, what the heck? Yeah. She's played this for me. It's an incredible. Yeah, I have like a, a digital recording of it. Um, actually, it was on you a, saved it it? On a tape or something. I don't know. I played it. That's amazing. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell my well, just like one dumb voicemail story, which is, and this is all this is like a a bunch of weird humble brags at once. But I went to New York in for Halloween 2000. I want to say. And I got to stay in the Tommy Boy Records. Uh, it wasn't a penthouse per se, but it, I mean, it was like it was a, a, a apartment that they kept for their artists down the street from the offices. <laughs> and I was very good friends with uh, Liz, uh, the notorious Liz, who was the radio promotions person at the time. And she was like, "Shiv, no one's staying there. You can come. You can crash. Wow. Like whatever." When I get there, the there it was an old school answering machine, and the messages were all for Everlast. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Like he had been, a, I guess, the last person oh, to be. Oh, that's there. awesome. <laughs> oh my 
and we were just like we hit play on the because I was like there's messages. Of course you're gonna listen. Oh, <laughs> I love that. Yeah, <sighs> I have so many weird. You know, because back in the day, that's what you did. You did like phone interviews, so you have like all these like tapes yeah. and stuff. And yeah, I have. I tried one time um, calling a. I was interviewing Kings of Leon. Um, and, um, mm. the first time I tried them, nobody answered. I got their answering machine and it was like the funniest, like answering machine. It's like, you've reached the Kings. We're not home right now. That kind of thing. And I was like, I oh, just God. had to call back so I could record it. <laughs> so that's what I did. I, I called back and I recorded it. It's like, that's too funny. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and... Talk about the kind of artist though, that we played at Waxy before they were ever anything. Yeah. I mean, and they, let's let's face it, they're a testament to actual A&R because no one in America gave a fuck for like their first yeah. three records. And then like something finally snapped and they became so huge. But also, where are they now? Question mark? Definitely where the hell are they now? They were never my thing. But yeah, you're right about how it kind of happened. Yeah. I mean, I loved those early days. I mean, I remember, you know, again, our frequency was 97.7 and we would do low dough shows for 97 cents and we uh kings of leon played in like a 250 capacity bar for us for 97 cents when that first ep came out wow and um i hung out with them for that day and was just like man these guys are gonna be big and then then they weren't yeah. for a while mm-hmm. uh you know they, they had all that success overseas and it, it wasn't translating mm-hmm. here in america but somehow someone at rca really hung by them and like kept kept going and then they finally became you know they became huge and i'm sure like jesus by sex on fire like i don't ever want to oh hear my that God. in my that whole life worst. but the, I, I have a fondness for the earlier mm-hmm. stuff me I too guess, you know? when i was in college i was uh in the dc area and it was 99 hfs whatever the call letters were uh, of yeah. course yeah W-H-F-S. and um they had a 99 cent show same kind of thing at 9 30 club yep. And yep that was just what everyone <laughs> did. everyone did it but the, the the act that i saw is so embarrassing that i have to say it out loud um it was Ooh. evanescence <laughs> oh no yeah i'm sorry yeah it was cringy <laughs> You know, again, no, I wasn't music director yet, but that was, we, 97X and the FM years played Evanescence way before it became successful. But like, you know, we, we loved female artists on the air. We always mm-hmm. played female artists. So that wasn't a big stretch for us, even though it was a little more aggro than we normally played. But like, it went on the air and it, you know, it did pretty well, like with requests and everything. And it, But then at a certain point, like, you know, we were a little snobby, I suppose. I mean, there there were definitely things that got played at the station well before they hit, like, total mainstream insanity. And then we would slowly pull the CD yeah, out yeah, yeah. of the studio and never play it again. I mean, John Mayer is another great example. I mean, I remember when I first started working at the station and playing songs from Room for Squares when it was still, like, an aware records thing, like, really before it was upstream to Columbia. And then, like, at a, like by the time it became, like, VH1 bill, like, we were just like, mm. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Those were things that didn't make the transition to the internet broadcast. Exactly. Good exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So thanks so much for coming on this episode, Shiv. It was so awesome to see you and hear you and hear all the stories. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. So fun. And, uh. 
And we will catch you next time for another episode of Mixtape Memories. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.